0: natural wine in paris wine caressed by angels in portugal and a lesson on how to correctly pronounce a wine region in the pacific northwest this week it's all about wine
1: traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes tasty beverages and interesting experiences this is the destination eat drink podcast on the radio misfits podcast network
0: I'm Brent Peterson. Thanks for joining me on Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. And this week, it's all about wine. We're exploring all different corners of the world that makes wine from Chacolí in Spain's Basque region to the wines of the Willamette Valley to France and the Douro region of Portugal. Plus, a little bit about wine marketing and the psychology of wine pricing but first let me offer you a happy and prosperous new year this show is posting on january 1st 2021 and 2020 can't get into the rearview mirror fast enough here's looking forward to a year when we can actually travel destination eat drink Jess Timmons is originally from Liverpool, but she now makes her home in Paris. We talked about French wine, specifically natural wine.
1: Yeah, sure. And we will we'll stop saying biodynamic because actually it's really confusing and everyone has a different idea of what biodynamic is. So we'll just say natural. Um, natural wine means that there's there's kind of very low intervention there's no pesticides in the in the vines it's all kind of small batch done by hand and there's little intervention with the wine itself very small if any sulfites added um and nothing else so that's what we kind of understand it to be and it as you say it's taken off massively in Paris so over the last kind of 10 years maybe a little bit longer um we're seeing more and more of it and more places popping up that are only serving natural wine or even just your kind of corner bistro that will have a natural option. Um, if it fits into the whole kind of French way of thinking. In France, you know, we have laws around how the cheese is made. We're very attentive to this idea of terroir, to the idea of knowing where your food comes from, knowing how the climate and the soil has affected the taste of that food. Um, and that is just, you know, that's, that's something we talk about a lot when we talk about wine as well. And natural wine is, is one of the most kind of honest expressions of the place and the climate and the grape and the winemaker. It just is part of the whole French way of thinking. Like we want to know where our food comes from. We want to know how it's made. We want to know that it is, um, It's honest. It's really from the Savoie. That cheese is really from, I don't know, the Auvergne, And it fits into that whole kind of way of thinking, which is one of the reasons I think it's, it's taken off so much.
0: Years and years ago, we used to talk about simply the terroir, you know, where it was from, what the land was like, what the sunshine was like, things like that. This goes far beyond that. And in the United States, we talk about organic wine, but this goes beyond just organic wine. It's, it's more than just having pesticide-free grapes. It's how you treat the vines and how you process the, uh, the grapes into becoming wine, which is very interesting, I think. What would be some of the best places to go to experience wine when we're in Paris, whether it's a wine shop or a wine bar or even a bistro?
1: Depending on where you, how adventurous you're feeling. So um, the places that I've mentioned as well, like Les Arlo Septime, um, La Buvette, these are all people that are only doing natural wine. If you wanted to go a little bit further and 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 taste something a little kind of more adventurous, there's a bar called La Chambre Noire. So direct translation is the black room but it actually means a, a pinhole camera I think um, and they have a, a selection which is completely sulfite free, there is nothing added to any of their wines every bottle you can get this kind of maximum 12,000 bottles of it, it's really small batch, they're doing something a little bit niche, if you want to get out of your comfort zone and try something very very natural I would say go to them if you are um, Hesitant but interested... Um, I would maybe go to somewhere like L'Avant Comptoir, which is in Saint Germain, um, and they have three or four different locations. Oh, we're allowed.
0: We're allowed to go to Saint Germain.
1: i make an exception for these guys because okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing about these guys is that they will open any bottle for you. So there's maybe a really expensive bottle that you've had your eye on for a while, but you're not sure if that's you know really how you want to spend ni- ninety euros. They'll just open it for you and serve you one glass, so you can have a taste of lots of different things without having to commit to the bottle.
0: Angie Johnson from Eat Adventures Food Tours in Portland, Oregon, talks about Oregon wine and schools me on how to pronounce Willamette.
2: Oh, definitely. There's a lot of people that come here just for the wine. And for the record, it's a really tricky word if you're not from here. But (laughs) as locals, we pronounce it Willamette. Willamette. And one of the ways, yes, and one of the ways that the tour companies have you remember that is they say, it's Willamette, damn it. I don't know if that helps.
0: <laughs> yeah, I won't forget that now.
2: <laughs> so we have so much wine at our disposal. I mean, the Willamette Valley is really renowned for its Pinots, and we're starting to get more and more grapes and varietals growing out there, Chardonnays, Rieslings. There's just a lot of great stuff coming from there. But that's just one wine region in Oregon. It's such a big state that we have a lot of different AVAs. You can go down into southern Oregon if you want more robust, like Italian varietals. You can even just pop over into Washington. There's a lot of Cab What's great about having so much wine around us is that comes into the city as well. And what we're seeing popping up are all of these urban wineries, which is like a brewery, where you the ingredients are grown somewhere else. You bring it in and you make it on site. And what's fantastic for the urban wineries is they don't have to worry about the farming side of things. They just buy the ingredients, they buy the grapes, and they make it there, and they sell it just like a brew pub, kind of. And there's a couple that I really love in Portland, but one of my favorites is Southeast Wine Collective. It's off of Southeast Division, and it's just a great atmosphere. They serve um, some snacks they're having their wine. It's, it's a really cool place to visit if you're in town.
3: I
0: love the sound of that because, you know, you like you said, you've got breweries. Why not have wineries doing the same thing in town? Are there any places where we could go um, and maybe go to a wine bar and experience a lot of different wineries? In other words, they've got all kinds of different bottles that we could sample.
2: Definitely. So South Park Seafood, which is in downtown Portland, in addition to having an amazing seafood menu, I mean, they have this enormous oyster bar. Um, the back part of their... Um, restaurants, the bar area, is a wine bar, and they have lots of different wines you can choose from. So they've got their own wine, they've got lots of other wines, and they have great things to eat. So you really can't go wrong.
0: Andre Apollinario's food tour company is called Taste Porto, and Andre is an expert on Porto's distinctive port wine. He told me about wines caressed by angels.
3: I'm, I'm a big fan of the beverage. Uh, port wine is a, a fortified beverage. So um, a wine in which the fermentation process is stopped at the second day uh, with the addition of a distilled wine, almost like a cognac, that is added on a 20% ratio, turning the alcohol content of the mix way above uh, 15%, actually closer to 20%, 20% which uh, does not allow um, is to continue fermentation. So fermentation stops there. Uh, but this this technique is not something exclusive to port wine. So what the secret relies not just on the technique, but also on terroir, uh, soil, the climate of the region, and the grapes used in them. The soil is schist or shale that does not keep water at surface, but it will work as a thermal wheel storing the heat of the sun throughout the day and then releasing it slowly overnight. Um, additionally, um, the region Douro Valley, which is, starts roughly 100 kilometers east of Porto, uh, it's really dry. Uh, summertime, the temperatures will go ramping up, uh, taking vineyards into hydric stress due to the shortage of water. The vineyards adapted, uh, less grapes per square kilometer, Tiny, tiny grapes, uh, to be water efficient, thicker skins. The vineyards they will have their roots going thirty to fifty meters below surface to get the water that is infiltrating. And then the uniqueness of these of these grapes. Douro is home to almost I don't know, maybe ninety different kinds of grapes, unique to Portugal. Uh names like Touriga Nacional, Toriga Franca, Tinta Roriz, Tintucão. Codga, uh, Malvasia, And I know that these names sound like, I don't know, ancient Greek to your ears, but uh, they're unique. They're what makes uh, port wine so special. This mix of grapes, soil, climate, and technique. It's a, uh, a really diverse beverage in the sense that you can drink um, whites, tawnies, rubies. And then you can go for the special uh, ones, like uh, there are aged whites, aged tawnies, and the special rubies, amongst which the late bottled vintages and the vintages. Those ones are the ones that uh, they're so special that I usually describe them to be called a vintage. It has to be approved by a, a panel of experts, and they will decide whether the grapes in that wine... Um, were caressed by angels that year. (laughs) Very good. It will be vintage. If not, they will be dimmed down to a lit bottle vintage, which I have to say, it's still pretty amazing.
0: And one of the things about port wine is that often some of the best ones are aged for a long period of time. You can find a 30-year port, a 40-year port. It's, It's a rather expensive endeavor at times. But if you can just get like one glass or one taste, it's definitely
3: worth it i would yeah and actually it it's so complex it, it, you can use it as an appetizer beverage look preparing a porto tonic dry white pork tonic water um ice cubes lemon zest and mint you got yourselves the most amazing cocktail it will help you cook even better afterwards <laughs> uh, then look uh, i'm a big fan of lit bottle vintages they're so amazing getting them with uh a dark chocolate dessert or my favorite with stilton cheese. Oh dear lord. Oh perfect. Uh, yeah, and those ones, for instance, the the late bottle vintages and the vintages are the ones that you age in the bottle. So you will be able to find a vintage or a late bottle vintage from the nineteen twenties, nineteen tens, nineteen hundreds. So they those ones obviously they will be expensive. Uh, but there will be an experience to your palate. There will be tremendous.
0: Andre, you talked about the vineyards being in the Douro Valley, which are east up the Douro River, but the, all the major port houses are literally along the waterfront across the river from Porto. So if you're sitting on the riverfront in Porto, you can look across and you can see all these famous names that if you have any experience with port wine, you recognize them. Taylor and Sandman, and you know, the the rest of them that are all over there. And folks can go visit those port wine houses. What's your suggestion for someone who wants to dig a little bit deeper, learn a little bit more about port wine as far as visiting
3: uh, port wine houses or visiting tasting rooms? I recommend that you do both that you visit one of the big port wine houses and then go to a small tasting room in which you will get. Uh, in contact with small-scale port wine makers. Um, I would start with the big names, though. I'll go to places like Graham's, Coburns, Ferreira, uh, Ramos Pinto, um, for a, an initial approach. Okay? Uh, it, you can even choose the rarity of the wines that you sample at the end of a tour. But go and understand uh, why uh, those houses exist across the river in Gaia sample their wines and then there's a a wine shop downtown porto called toriga uh, in which a talented talented young man a gentleman called the vive uh owns a shop called uh, toriga that he looks specifically to have a selection of uh small scale port wine producers those guys they are producers and bottlers so all of the grapes that they use for their port wine is from their own estate Uh, so they don't buy grapes which the big labels will do they will buy grapes from small farmers these guys at toriga are producers and bottlers it's it will widen and deepen your knowledge about port wine having these two views into that amazing beverage.
0: I, I think for Americans, we think of port wine as simply a beverage. If, if we know about port wine at all, we think of port wine as a beverage to have with desserts, uh, with your cho- with your piece of chocolate or your chocolate cake, like you mentioned. And you can do that. But port wine is so much more versatile than that. You can enjoy it before dinner. You can enjoy it with dinner. You can enjoy it after dinner because there's lots of different kind of taste profiles with the port wine it's not strictly
3: sweet wine yeah fully agree for instance pairing a a vintage or a lit bottled vintage with a wild boar stew as a main course it's something uh spectacular going for olives and a 10 year old port as an appetizer delish um look it's it's such a robust beverage that nowadays, fancier restaurants, Michelin star-like restaurants, try to use port wine, all, the, all different kinds of port, as their cocktail base as well, uh, to go along with some of the main courses, and definitely as a dessert. Actually, I have to say, um, I don't have much of a sweet tooth, really. But after a meal, to go along with my coffee, I would definitely use as a dessert a glass of a 30-year-old Tony port. That's dessert on its own.
0: Chacoli is a wine from the Basque area of Spain. Anya from Devour Tours tells me about the wine and the food to enjoy with it.
4: Well, Chacoli is our champagne, basically. Champagne of Basque country. One of the most important drinks, uh, alcoholic drinks, uh, same as cider. Um, we've got... Four provinces, uh, four different um, regions that produce cider, uh, sorry, Chakuli in Basque Country, well, bueno, three in Basque Country and one in Burgos. Mm, and these are the only places in the world where you can find it. So it's really interesting to try it. I don't, I'm not going to say it's not a fancy wine. It's not a fancy wine, although it's been becoming better and better every year. In the 80s, it almost disappeared. Um, it was like locally produced drink, and very often the farmers did it for their own consumption, so just for themselves. Okay. I'd say it's wine um, that was, you well, know, the wine was brought to Spain by Romans. And um, here we first time I think heard about Chacolí uh, from, from the books from 15th century. It's really a high acidity wine, uh, white wine, slightly sparkling. It's very crisp. It's young. It never gets into the barrel. We don't age it. It's very refreshing. It has slightly salty mineral aftertaste as well. So it's perfect with something with fatty foods like, uh, for example, jamon, Spanish jamon, or um, anything. But we very often also drink it with fish. Typical mix fish and chocolate. I never, I never um, recommend to drink chocolate on its own. Um, The little bubbles, even though it doesn't have really high alcohol content, only usually around 11, percent ten point five but um these little bubbles mm, they are bastards <laughs> they can get into your head and make you go crazy so <laughs> my recommendation have a drink just one to refresh yourself and then have a bite okay wear um, the chocolate yes yeah, chocolate and chocolate is made of the grapes that are called on the ribi suri on the ribi belta so basically on the ribi grape and all that, it be black grapes, a local variety. We we grow them in a very interesting way as well. It's really high humidity next to the soil here. They are grown on the slopes of the local hills, uh, overlooking the ocean. Uh, that's why the mineral aftertaste, because they get get it together with the wind, and it gets thick to to the um, to the skins of the grapes. We grow them high. I mean, the vines are grown high, and then we spread the branches on the wires. So you can walk underneath. It looks really impressed.
0: This last piece I have for you today is very interesting. Alex Miyazi is the editor of Gastro Obscura. And Alex talked to me about wine and the effect of marketing and packaging on wine pricing and our perception of wine quality.
5: I will talk about this all day, Brent. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Go ahead. We got the time.
5: First got interested in because I was once found myself at the home of a, I don't think he was a billionaire, but he had plenty of money. And he told me, you know, he, he took us for a little tour of his wine cellar and he said, you know, uh, if you can spend a lot of money on wine and, and stock a big wine cellar, then you get to drink for free because all the bottles go up in price. So you can just drink the difference. Okay. I, th- I found that interesting. And so I wanted to learn more about, you know, the, the price of wine and learned all, I ended up learning about all these people who, you know, create investments based on, you know, investing in, in really nice bottles of wine, you know, the, um, you know, Chateau Lafitte's of the world. And as I did that, I started coming across these kind of studies you were you were talking about, you know, the ones that show that, you know, students in a program where they are studying wine and tasting notes and being prepared to go into the industry, you know, they can be tricked just by red food dye. Uh, you have red food, you know, give them two glasses of identical white wine, but one has red food dye. They'll describe the white wine with classic white wine adjectives, the, red, the seemingly red one with classic red wine adjectives. You know, sure, those are students. But even if you look at, um, you know, you do a statistical analysis of professional wine tastings and judgings, um, you'll see that the ribbons that are given out, the awards that are given out, the scores and ratings that are given out to these wines at the highest level. Um, you have the judges blindly rank these wines multiple times and you can see it's their, their rankings are basically statistically random. Um, they may as well have just rolled a dice to, to rate all of these wines, given the, the level, the lack of consistency between their ratings. And so this, I didn't know what to do with this because I feel like on one side there are people, you know, people have strong reactions to wine and especially wine snobs and, wine prices, I think just because of the way that wine is so often used to almost police class lines. Um, So, you know, I think some people learn about this and they're like, great, I knew it was all a scam. You know, the expensive (laughs) test stuff doesn't taste any better. It's all just grape juice. Um, And then the other side, you kind of have these wine professionals and they kind of shrug off these studies or these experiments and they say, oh, well, you know, we all know you can't rate everything precisely from zero to 100 or 80 to 100. And, you know, we just like learning about wine and everyone has different preferences. And, you know, I find both of these answers extremely unsatisfying. Um, You know, you cannot just, you know, you you can't say that yes, some wine is worth thousands of dollars and other wine is only worth a couple dollars and then shrug off all signs that no one can tell the difference without any cues um, as saying subjective preferences. And, you know, on the other hand, do I really think there's no difference between wine Um, do I really feel like I can have, you know, two buck chuck is just as good as everything else. Like, no, no, I don't. Um, so like, where's my middle ground? Like, what do I make of this? And, you know, I, I think as I started kind of trying to, you know, find my way in the darkness, one of the things I started thinking about more is how these kind of experiments done to wine that seem so damning, so crazy, you can do them with kind of any food or drink. You know, you put a piece of chicken on a nicer plate, people will think it's better. Um, just the same way that if you put cheap wine and expensive wine, an expensive wine bottle, people will think it's better. I'm not sure if it's still around, but there was a restaurant chain called, or kind of concept restaurant called Don Le Noir in the dark in France. And the idea was that all the waiters were blind and you go in, it's pitch black, you're guided to your seat and you're kind of shown where your fork and knife and everything is. And you have a meal and you don't know the menu. Um, And you know, I had two friends go, and they said, you know, I was trying. I was like, "What is this? What is this?" And then I was like, "Oh, some." You know, they told me like it was strawberry. You know, you cannot identify basic flavors. Um, So just the same way you put that red food dye in the white wine, and people are tricked. You know, that's that's going to be true with kind of everything. It works outside food. You know, when people first designed this this new type of office chair that was all based on ergonomic uh, principles, and they asked people to try it, people didn't think it was comfortable because their image of a comfortable chair had big cushions. It was a giant armchair. So how could this kind of exoskeleton of a chair be comfortable if it wasn't cushioned, even though now it's a very expensive chair because it's been well-designed on ergonomic principles? So on one hand, I feel like I've kind of got a handle on this, right? I, I understand the principles at work, that people are easily tricked or misled by context cues, and we really rely on those. On the other hand, I have no idea what to do with this knowledge you know, what does that mean that like, it, it kind of like robs a lot of meaning from the world in a way I don't know what to do with, you know, the fact that we can be so easily tricked and it extends even to, to experts. Um, like, I don't know, do I hire someone to, to buy cheap food and drink and, and repackage it and more attractive labels all the time? Cause it doesn't matter. Um, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know what to do with this information and I don't, I don't think anyone else does. I don't know why more people haven't tried to like figure this out i'm always just baffled it feels like everyone's just in the two camps of you know oh you know the winos just kind of trying to shake it off and the the people who hate the wine snobs um you know yelling about it and i'm just in the middle of trying to figure out you know what what do we make of this and why aren't there more people in the middle here with me
0: okay there you go so interesting And that's going to put a cork in this episode of Destination Eat Drink. Next week, we are in Windsor, England for castles and pubs. Everything you want out of a trip to England. Until then, there's still DestinationEatDrink.com for all your foodie travel needs. And this week on the blog, I talk about chestnuts in Rome. And, of course, you can get all the episodes of Destination Eat Drink. There's 109 of them. Uh, They're all available at radiomisfits.com. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Chief Wine Taster Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your effing mask, and I'll see you down the road. Happy 2021.
1: Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink. A presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.